This is a panel discussion between three uh, revolutionary socialist groups, uh, Workers' Liberty, uh, who are hosting, uh, Mutiny and Red Flag. And um, the reason that we wanted to um, put a panel like this together is because, um, well, I mean, in, in any circumstance, it's always valuable and worthwhile for um, socialists, for Marxists, for, for revolutionaries in the labor movement to discuss and exchange ideas with each other, but particularly given what's going on at the moment with the kind of um, triple crises or the, the triple um, uh, impacts of the, the pandemic, the, the ongoing climate crisis and the anti-racist upheaval around Black Lives Matter, felt there were some kind of particular discussions to be had now about what revolutionary socialists should be saying and doing in this moment, um, what the differences between our three tendencies might be in terms of our perspectives and, and what some of the common ground and, and potential for collaboration might be as well. So um, the aim of tonight is really just to be a spur to discussion. Um, uh, that's, that's, the, that's the purpose of it. I'm Ruth Cashman. I'm a trade union activist in Lambeth and a Workers' Liberty supporter. So we're 12 years on from the 2008 crash. We're entering another crash, one that is going to be massive and probably dwarf 2008. And as Dan said, this is in the context of a global health and climate crisis. In the last decade, we saw politics fracture and there was exciting talk of the breakup of the neoliberal consensus. But what we've seen is a general trend in ruling class politics away from neoliberalism only to go towards the nationalist right. So Trump in the US, Modi in India, Putin in Russia, Netanyahu in Israel, Bolsonaro in Brazil and on and on. And here, I think all the participants in the panel will agree that the Brexit movement and to a certain extent, the Johnson government have been the British part of this global nationalist trend. So we need to build a movement which can replace capitalism, class division, exploitation with a new society based on consistent democracy, collective ownership and solidarity, a socialist movement for a socialist system. Um, and at the same time that the right has been growing, there's also been growth on the left. So in Britain, the Corbyn movement saw big shifts in the political terrain. It, 2016 polling showed more people identified with socialism than capitalism. Tens of thousands of people joined Momentum, which on occasion described itself as a socialist organisation. And so though Labour failed to win the election and the left failed to hold control of the party, those tens of thousands of socialists should still be there. And so the question is, do we simply need to give them a new organisation to join or funnel them in to the next activity that they should be involved in? Um, and I would say to that, the answer is no, because there are not tens of thousands of socialist activists. There are tens of thousands of left-wing people who've been through a left, which has systematically miseducated them on what socialism is. And if we're going to build a revolutionary left, we have to confront that. The left in the Labour Party was defined not by workers' power or social ownership or radical democracy. You could be on the left and oppose nationalisation of the banks or fudge the anti-trade union laws or call basic public investment socialist. You could vote through cuts to local services and call yourself a socialist. Indeed, Momentum put out a video explaining that given we have roads and schools and the police all paid for by taxation, we already live in socialism, but they were gonna make it even socialister if elected. And the Labour left was a funny old place. So for some, the left was defined by how strongly you denied accusations of anti-Semitism or how militantly you opposed the liberalism of another Europe and the fight to stop Brexit, but the, um, or how many times you phone banked or canvassed, but the most common definition of being on the left was supporting the leadership on any issue. Now, going forward, we have to stand up for real socialism. We need to say that social democracy and left liberalism are not socialism, and we need to confront the legacy of Stalinism, our movement. Within the Labour left, uh, I work in Momentum Internationalist, which is the uh, platform that I stood for, for the Momentum NCG elections. Um, and it seeks to bring together socialists to fight for consistent democracy and accountability, a culture of free speech and open debate, both in the Labour movement today and in the society we want to build, who are consistently democratic and internationalist, arguing for open borders, free movement and self-determination for all nations and who are involved in struggles and campaigns and see those struggles and socialist education as part of transforming the labour movement into a force capable of liberating the working class of humanity and overthrowing capitalism. 
obviously um, within any kind of network or even, I mean, even quite small group, there are some disagreements and debates, but I think that socialism, democracy and inter internationalism and class struggle are pretty good starting points for looking forward for what the revolutionary left need to do. Um, so if we start with democracy, clearly one of the basic problems in our society, in the political system and in the economy is the lack of democracy. As the left leads, leaves the leadership of Labour, it's barely more democratic as a party than when they took power. MPs are unaccountable to members. We didn't put through even simple things like open selection. The policy is largely decided behind closed doors with conference decisions ignored or watered down at the whims of the leadership. And this is particularly true if they're seen as policies that are too radical. So free movement, some of the policies on nationalization. The left membership um, sidelined fighting for openly socialist ideas or in many cases even social democratic policies for maneuvers for temporary advantage on committees and advancing loyal wannabe politicians into positions of power. The political culture was also toxic with a cultish devotion and an intolerance of dissent. We've seen um, throughout the project but I think it's got worse and worse as it's continued. We've seen bullying and smears uh, throughout, particularly election periods. You've seen young and new activists pushed out of the left because they can't take the atmosphere. Rumours and lying and witch hunting attacks. And sometimes it's most extreme intimidation and harassment. The culture we need to build on the left isn't just free of that negative culture, uh, but positive in terms of debating difference and working together. In day-to-day -day politics, there's a seal between working-class action, so protests and strikes on one side, and big politics, which is done by a professional cast of politicians, bureaucrats and fixers, over on the other. And we've seen this replicated in the Labour movement. So trade union general secretaries are not entirely, but on the whole, elected not from organised workplaces, but from an officer, senior officer layer in the unions of professional trade unionists. In Momentum, we saw the discussion of whether to build a social movement or whether to concentrate on the structures of the Labour Party and changing Labour Party policy as if the two were mutually exclusive tasks. And finally, I think that you see it very clearly in the dismissiveness um, in the attitude to things like meetings and debates and people talking about meetings and political discussions putting ordinary people off, um, which is in fact a profoundly elitist idea which sees ordinary people as foot soldiers with no place in developing or deciding politics. Working class emancipation doesn't just need a class that can strike and can protest, but for those strikes and protests to be part of a strategy for change and ultimately to take power. If you don't think working class women can manage a two hour meeting with agendas and motions and minutes because it's, it's too alien to them, how the hell do you think they're gonna run society? Democracy is intrinsic to our entire political project and the world we want to build. And you can see that, too, in the approaches to internationalism. We must be consistently democratic on an international level. If you think socialism necessitates human and political freedom, your model cannot be Cuba, where there are death sentences um, for journalists or bloggers who act against the independence of the territorial integrity of the state or 20-year sentences for those who commit acts aimed at subverting the internal order of the nation. But with the socialism of the Morning Star and its Stalinist fans, which hold positions right across the labor movement, your internationalism can be pumping out propaganda for the Chinese state as it spies on, imprisons, and forced sterilizes the Uyghur population in a state anti-Muslim eugenics program. Or it can mean trying and unsurprisingly failing to ride the nationalist anti-immigrant Brexit project to a Labour victory, as if Brexit, rather than the British expression of a nationalist lurch, was a politically characterless working class rage that could be directed in any direction at any enemy. Our internationalism must stand apart from that. We argue for open borders, free movement and self-determination, for all nations. On Brexit, we argued to remain and rebel, resisting the drive to break up the EU on the basis of nationalist reaction, whilst also opposing bosses and borders in the EU as elsewhere. It means consistent ad advocacy for the right to self-determination of all national groups. Workers' Liberty argue for a two-state settlement in Israel-Palestine, guaranteeing an equal right to self-determination for Israeli Jews and Palestinian Arabs. 
and self-determination for oppressed national groups such as the Kurds, Tamils, Uyghurs, amongst many others globally. In the UK and across the world, the enemy we face is an insurgent nationalist far right. Our answer to this threat must be unflinching. We need to challenge, not to accommodate to right-wing ideas about nation, race or immigration. The working class is global and we must fight against attempts to reduce it to national, cultural or ethnic monoliths. We must reject calls to trail the most reactionary elements of our class. We see the Black Lives Matter protests which have begun to raise the profile of colonialism and state violence and the Me Too protests against sexual harassment and sexual violence as important aspects of our struggle. We must knot together these fights against oppression into a united working class movement for liberation. Fighting bigotry and oppression is a key element of our class politics. The route to a better world is through working class emancipation. Our central focus is the organised labour movement, including the trade unions and the Labour Party. We don't hold illusions in them. We know they're meek, undemocratic, flawed in endless ways. But revolutionary socialists can't start again from scratch or concentrate on less, frustra less frustrating side projects. We must educate and organise socialists so we can transform the labour movement into a force capable of liberating the working class and humanity. The capitalists always organise on a class struggle basis, fighting militantly for their ends, against workers and the press people, and at the moment, very seriously, the planet. The class struggle will continue as long as capitalism continues, and to end it, we must fight to win it. We now stand on the edge of an enormous crisis. Capitalism by nature creates these crises, and capitalists will, will by their nature seek to make our class fight, pay for it. Struggle will decide if they succeed in this. We must build campaigns and strikes. We must also be ready to amplify and support campaigns which we didn't build. So far in the pandemic, we've seen fights over PPE, the Safe Equal campaign for sick and isolation pay, the fight in schools over reopening, and soon we will see massive job cuts and condition cuts. Dis um, and we have to be ready to start fights over these too. The union leaders will neither have the industrial nor the political strategy for this crisis. And worse, at pretty much every high point in class struggle the British working class have ever seen, their leaders have collapsed and betrayed them. This is why a central aim of our trade union work is an open, democratic and genuinely broad-based rank and file movement in the unions. With such a rank and file movement, we could force the union leaders to fight and when they refuse, we could replace them. So um, I've given you a whirlwind of the tasks of revolutionary socialists. Um, I imagine there'll be some agreement on some bits, uh, a difference of focus on others and probably disagreements on some others. And tonight and going forward, we should discuss them all. But I will end on this. There's a fundamental divide in the left. There is a left based on demagogy, leader worship, social partnership or bureaucracy. And there's a left that emphasizes internationalism, class struggle, and a culture of democratic debate. Of course, these things aren't black and white, and they're not two homogenous blocks. Many people or even organizations have aspects of both, or can be one way or the other. But if we want to build the revolutionary left, we must cohere as much as possible of the rational, internationalist, class struggle left into an effective force for the future. First of all, well done. Uh, it sounds like it's mainly Daniel. Well done, Daniel, putting this together because uh, 60 participants is um, a very healthy audience for uh, this discussion. And thank you, Ruth. There is a very, very wide measure of uh, agreement with what you said. And I want to put the emphasis really on agreement, not uh, disagreements about uh, details. Um, and I also want to, I mean, I, I, having agreed with virtually everything you've said, I also want to put things in a slightly wider uh, perspective. And I hope that that will, in a sense, be complementary to what you have been saying. I really want to say three things. I want to say something about the nature of the crisis, which you um, alluded to, uh, Ruth, and you made the comparison with 2008. And... Um, one could also make the comparison with 1929 and the 1930s, the Great Depression. And when you do that, when you make comparison with the crisis now and previous capitalist crises, you have to come to the conclusion that this is potentially the worst crisis in the history of the system 
and therefore the worst crisis actually in the history of humanity and the planet. And I want to start by giving three reasons why I think it is that serious, what we now face. The first is the climate uh, crisis, which you uh, referred to, Ruth, and that is something that wasn't there as a major problem facing humanity and the planet in the, in, in the 1930s. We've got about 10 years or so to prevent um, catastrophic and potentially irreversible um, ecological breakdown. And of course, the climate crisis is just one aspect of a multifaceted ecological crisis, a whole series of ecological crises, um, which in, into which we can now put the pandemic as well, because there's a sense in which the pandemic is part of that rupture, that rift, that metabolic rift between uh, humanity and uh, nature, which is which is brought about by what by, by this process of uncontrolled, unregulated capital accumulation on a global scale. That's one reason why this is, crisis is so serious. Here's the second. You see, last time in the 1930s, um, we lost. The left went down to defeat, and we had fascism, war, and genocide. Uh, the choice was socialism or barbarism, and we got barbarism. And they killed 60 million people. They killed 60 million people in the war and the genocide. If there was that kind of military crisis uh, today, they wouldn't kill 60 million. If there was an unlimited military confrontation, they would kill 6,000 million. They, they have the potential, they have the arsenals to destroy everybody um, on the planet. That's why this is potentially uh, so much more serious than it was in the 1930s. And here's the third thing. You see, in the 1930s, there were still huge numbers of people who were, in a sense, outside the system. There was still an enormous peasantry, uh, huge numbers of subsistence farmers who weren't really affected by the global capitalist crisis. Even in the 1970s, that was still true. You still had very large numbers of uh, independent peasants in the 1970s. In the last 40 years of uh, neoliberalism, that has almost completely disappeared, that peasantry, that independent peasantry. Um, the, 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 the system has now penetrated into the pores of every part of human society globally and penetrated into every part of nature. It is a totally globalized system in a way that is uh, to an extent that has never been true before. Now, that makes the crisis this time, I think, probably the worst uh, in the history of the system and therefore in the history of humanity. Now, that's my second point. And it's to talk about the working class. The working class is bigger on a global scale than ever before. The International Labour Organization says that the working class is now, well, the number of, uh, of, of employees, of, of workers, is, is about three billion people, which means when you put in the families, it's virtually everybody. It's about six billion people altogether of the seven billion people on the planet. The, the, the working class in terms of numbers, in terms of proportion, is overwhelmingly dominant um, now in a way that, that hasn't been true before. Huge proportion of that working class is precarious. The International Labour Organization estimates that about 60% of the global working class is precarious. A very large proportion of it is effectively surplus. In other words, it's not able to make any kind of living in the system, proper living in the system um, at all. There's a huge mass, there's a core working class globally, there's a huge precarious working class globally, and there's also a huge mass of surplus humanity, what Marx, of course, called the reserve army of labor. But this is now on a global scale and unprecedented in terms of numbers. But here's the problem for us. And now I'm going to sort of make reference to this uh, concept of class in itself and class for itself. You see, class in itself is unprecedented in terms of size. It's, it's, it's dominance as a proportion of humanity. Vast majority of humanity are effectively now part of the international working class. And yet when you talk about class for itself, that is workers organizing themselves, mobilizing and fighting back. In other words, workers becoming a political force, workers becoming part of the process of struggling for change. There we have a crisis. Very small proportion 
of that vast international working class is now organized in an effective way. You think about the situation in Britain, um, let's take you know, part of the, the core of the system, one of the old developed parts of the system, the situation in Britain is that the trade union movement, it's not just that it's halved in size in terms of trade union members, it's also when you look at the quality of union organization, it's completely hollowed out. There's, there's you know, workplace organization, rank and file organization um, is minimal. Um, even in industries where there is a relatively high level of trade union organization compared with the way it was in the, you know, in the, in, in the, in the, uh, you know, in the uh, 1970s and so on. So we've got that problem of a very high degree of casualization, of insecurity, of atomization of the class not actually being organized as a class. That's my second point. My third point is this, and that of course is part of the depth of the crisis, the agent of social transformation is not organized in the way that we need it to be. My third point is this, and it's to say, about, talk about the revolutionaries. You see, it, you look at the scale of the crisis, you look at the weakness of the working class in an organizational sense on a global scale, and you have to say that the responsibilities of revolutionaries have never been greater. And the responsibility of revolutionaries in this situation is to create revolutionary organization. We live with the actuality of the revolution. I'm gonna use that expression that Lukács used about Lenin when he was sort of, you know, Lukács was created by that great period of working class upsurge between 1917 and 1923. He wrote this short study of Lenin and he uses the expression Lenin becoming the embodiment of the actuality of the revolution, not just in Russia, but on a global scale. Though the term could equally well have been applied to Trotsky. They both lived the actuality of the revolution in that period. And what does it mean? It means that at that moment in time, humanity was facing a choice between socialism and barbarism. The revolution was inherent in the crisis. The revolution was made by the crisis into an imperative uh, for humanity. We live with that as well. We live with the actuality of the revolution in that sense, the necessity for international working class revolution because of the scale of the, uh, of the, of the crisis. And the task becomes what it has been really since Marx and Engels wrote the Communist Manifesto in the winter of, 90, uh, of 1847 to 48. It's the same task as Lenin sets himself when he builds the Bolshevik party. It's the same task as Trotsky set himself in 1938, when in desperation, he launched a fourth international, which didn't really um, exist except in people's imagination. Each of these great revolutionaries in the past are addressing this uh, central question of the organization of the revolutionaries who need to be embedded in the vanguard forces of the class, building class organization and building class struggle, linking different struggles um, together and beginning to fan the flare-ups into a conflagration, which is the central job of revolutionaries. We have to do all of that. We have to do all of that in a very, very short uh, time scale, starting from a very, very low base indeed, when the revolutionary socialist tradition is probably weaker than it's been perhaps for a hundred years, no, probably beyond, probably more than a hundred years. And this is my final point, really, in relation to where we are as revolutionaries today. You see, what Marx did not say in the Communist Manifesto is that the revolutionaries should be organized in 57 different varieties of small group. We used, to, we used to talk about the 57 varieties of Trotskyist group back in the sort of 1980s. It was self-mockery because we were all in one group or another, and we called it the 57 varieties. He didn't say the revolutionaries should be in 57 different varieties of small group. Lenin didn't say in Russia in 1908, the revolutionaries should be in 57 different varieties of small group, defining each of those groups in terms of minute differences between one group um, and another. Trotsky didn't say that in 1938 when they launched the Fourth International. The serious revolutionaries have always said that revolutionary organization 
is an obligation on the revolutionaries who are serious not to prioritize building a small group. And I'm going to give, I'm going to give it, I'm going to use a term that is appropriate. By a small group, I mean a sect which prioritizes building its own organization over building unity among revolutionaries embedded in the struggles of the class. That's the difference between serious revolutionaries and uh, a sect. And don't misunderstand me, comrades. I come from that uh, tradition. We've all got histories. We've all been in these um, small organizations. And the place where I've got to is the realization that fragmenting the very weak revolutionary forces that we have in Britain today and in general across the globe into a series of small groups based on minute differences is madness. The differences should actually be part of a debate inside um, a single organization. We have an obligation as revolutionaries, as serious revolutionaries, to recognize the seriousness of the crisis facing humanity and the planet, the greatest we have ever faced, to recognize the weakness of the class and the need for the best revolutionaries, the best class militants, the best socialists to come together to help to rebuild class organization and connect the different struggles together. That responsibility, and it's a responsibility to um, history in the sense that just as was the case in the time of the First World War, just as was the case in the build up to the Second World War, it really is the case that again, we face a choice between socialism and barbarism. We have those who understand, those of us who understand that um, have a tremendous responsibility to try and build effective organization. I'm done. I mean, I won't take um, all the 15 minutes because um, I think that the two comrades before have outlined in some detail the um, uh, their political characterization of the situation um, in Britain internationally, the main um, tasks confronting the left in terms of the various struggles and so on. So I won't go through that. Really what I want to contribute to the debate um, focuses around... I think two elements of what um, people said in terms of what Ruth said, um, you know, Ruth defined the kind of left we need um, on the basis of a general set of, um, you know, uh, sort of um, principles around support for democracy and the labor movement, internationalism and so on. And obviously between the three organizations represented here, there is a certain convergence in terms of a general commitment to you know um principles as they are expressed in some of the struggles that we've been through so obviously brexit and free movement um you know uh support for the democratic revolutions in the arab spring opposition to what you know dictatorial or totalitarian regimes do um uh, support for democracy in the Labour Party and in the trade unions in particular. And I think that that's all fine. But I think that the um, concept of the revolutionary you know, left is much broader than that. And um, that those differences get to um, what Neil was saying about um, you know, the, the, the various revolutionary organisations. And I think to have any um, serious discussion about... Um, the revolutionary left, if that's what you want to call it, or revolutionary organizations, we have to um, have some kind of agreement on why those organizations exist and what they're doing. Um, I have to say, I, I, I really didn't, you know, as soon as Neil started talking about revolutionary organizations, I have to say, I, I don't think I agreed with almost anything he said, either, you know, his characterization of historic organizations or of um, the basis of existence of revolutionary organizations today. Um, and I think that that's, um, I don't think that what Neil said is anything particularly new or original. Um, it's true that in the 80s, people described the 57 varieties of Trotskyism, but um, it's also true that in the beginning of the 20th century, socialists and people on the left were complaining about the myriad different socialist organizations and their squabbles and so on. Um, I think that the um, 
Uh, we have to understand that the existence of different socialist organizations is fundamentally because they have a different program and strategy for the achievement of socialism. Yeah, they have a proposal for, they have a set of principles from which they derive their strategy and their tactics and which they believe is necessary for um, the uh, you know, the, the most organized parts of the labor movement and working class is vanguard to follow in order to transform a class in itself to a class for itself to um, organize the conquest of power and the organization of socialism. Um, and to an outsider or perhaps even to an insider, um, those differences can appear petty or minute or whatever, but the problem is, is that the history of the socialist movement shows that those differences are actually, you know, fundamentally they are important. Um, and that's why those organizations do exist and can continue to exist because they, there is a material reason and basis for their existence in the labor movement. Um, if all of these organizations were truly just sects who only exist to propagate themselves, then they wouldn't be able to have the influence they do. And the many, 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 many proposals there have been, even in my short political lifetime, of people coming in and saying, look, the problem is there's too many sects and tiny groups, you know, that just put themselves first. And what we need is a big, broad, revolutionary organization um, that everyone can join. And then the differences can be part of its strength and we'll overcome all of the sectarianism, you know, and march onwards to the conquest of power. Well, if it was that simple, then... You know, and that's an idea that is superficially very attractive. Um, but none of those organizations have ever been created or ever survived for very long. And the reason is, is because, you know, to have an organization based on um, a kind of algebraic assembly of all of the different left-wing groups on the basis of, you know, a lowest common denominator of agreement, right? Well, that's fine as long as everyone agrees that they can do their own thing. But as soon as a great political test happens, which in our political lifetimes is happening almost every day, right? Then when it comes to a decision about, well, what do we do, you know, with regards to this strike or with this leadership's betrayal or with this revolutionary situation in another country, do we organize solidarity or not? Those organizations break apart if they are not actually based on some level of principled agreement and programmatic unity, which is based on a common understanding of, um, you know, their tasks and so on. And so I think that, you know, in the end, there's nothing wrong with that. As long as organizations are absolutely clear about what they stand for and what that means, um, then it's perfectly possible to form, um, you know, uh, to organize ways of cooperating together within the working class movement to actually combine our strengths um, and allow those differences of tactics and strategy to be played out within the working class movement and for people to judge for themselves whether they are, um, which ones should be followed and which ones shouldn't. So I think that the, um, in terms of what that means for today, you know, the big um, people have described the coronavirus crisis, the various problems and so on. What we face today in Britain is um, what I'm going to call um, uh, following others before me, a crisis of leadership of the working class movement. Um, the, the response of the trade unions to the massive job cuts uh, and so on that coronavirus has triggered um, is basically, as we see with Unite and so on in the, in the airlines and in other trade unions, is to organise pay cuts and short time working for their members in return for government bailouts. That is a policy that is endorsed effectively, openly by the trade union leadership, um, uh, by the Labour Party leadership, sorry. The Labour Party leadership and the trade union leadership exists to, um, uh, you know, negotiate on behalf of trade unionists, um, you know, and to be the political representation of trade unionism within capitalism. That material um, responsibility that they have as negotiators and mediators in the class struggle um, puts them in a contradiction when um, their commitment to the continuation of the capitalist system comes into uh, conflict with their members, i.e., you know, their members start losing their jobs and so on. Um, the uh, Faced with this oncoming mass wave of unemployment and so on and the total reorganization of the economy, 
Um, the experience of the 1980s shows that we have only a very limited window of opportunity to organize our opposition to that before that massive unemployment creates a huge wave of demoralization and disorganization amongst the working class and young people. Um, and that's, of course, only, you know, simply dealing with the narrow question of jobs and the economy. This also applies for uh, climate change, social struggles, anti-racist struggles and women's struggles and so on. If it's to defend its interests, the working class, and therefore the organizations in the working class that come up with a strategy and a policy have to resolve that crisis by defeating the pro-capitalist wing in the trade unions and developing a policy that advances against capital itself. And that, I think, for me and for Red Flag is the question of the program that you actually put forward. It's all very well talking about the need for unity and like working together and whatever, but on what basis do you actually establish that unity? You have to agree unity. We want to work together on the basis of a common strategy. Um, as Ruth said, and as other people, I'm sure everyone here agrees, the struggle against capitalism means the struggle to win the working class to a program consisting of the seizure of power by the working class and the use of that political supremacy to dismantle the capitalist economy. Um, and for us, the central elements of that program of resistance in the here and now have to be based on concrete tactics that not only defend the interests of the working class, but arm it and prepare it organizationally and programmatically for its, you know, um, final goal of the seizure of power by building up the embryonic forms of um, working class control of industry, self-defense, and so on. I think that we can outline, you know, three um, big issues that we're facing. The economic crisis, what does that mean? Uh, it means workers' control in the workplace. That means forming workplace action groups, yeah? It doesn't matter if there aren't trade unionists in thousands and thousands of workplaces, yeah? Activists and young people who haven't been members of a trade union can still organize themselves together with other workers in their restaurants or in their courier firms and whatever to take the initiative over healthcare, the safe return to work, and so on. Inspection of the accounts of companies when they say they're laying off staff because of coronavirus, as you know, dozens and dozens of high street retail firms are doing, and whatever. These action groups can be coordinated on a on a borough basis, on a town basis, on a regional basis, and so on, to bring workers together to start coordinating their action. I think that is the absolutely elementary um, policy that the working class has got to adopt if it is to overcome the passivity and inaction of the trade unions. Secondly, we have to build up a national unemployed and precarious workers movement to fight job cuts, to fight benefit sanctions, to level up the paying conditions of these fraudulent youth apprenticeship and training schemes to, and to organize the occupation of workplaces that sack workers. And I think that that second aspect, the demand for the occupation and the nationalization of workplaces that lay off workers and demand their nationalization by the government under workers' control and so on. These are, I think, the elementary aspects of the program and the strategy that the left has to put forward. When it comes to Black Lives Matter and the struggles against police racism and systemic inequality and oppression more generally, um, we're talking about black self-defense, a labor movement stewards organization against fascism and racist attacks, and workers' control of hiring and firing in the workplace to combat racist practices and the pay gap and so on. And as far as internationalism concerns, again, it's all very well saying, well, look, we agree on, you know, the macro things of the urgency of climate change or of, you know, um, we don't support the Chinese dictatorship and all the rest of it. But we actually have to propose concrete methods of organizing these different international movements. The movements around the world are extremely uneven. In some parts of the world, there is a, you know, a huge and militant movement for women's liberation and against femicide and various aspects of women's oppression. In some countries like Britain, it's just non-existent. On the other hand, in other countries, there is a massive youth-led climate movement, which feeds in in the semi-colonial world to indigenous movements and so on. Um, and of course, now that's been joined by the Black Lives Matter movement, which is, you know, truly an international movement on all continents. Um, I think that the proposal that we have to put forward here is for new forms of social forums or assemblies on an international basis, which can actually start to develop a common strategy for common forms of resistance and fuse um, the common interests of these different sectional struggles. Um, and overcome, and that will start to overcome the, the emerging tendencies towards nationalism and chauvinism that are generated by the realignment of the you know, imperialist world order. 
And so I think all of these concrete tactical proposals, which the working class can actually do, aren't going to be spontaneously generated by the working class itself. Yeah, it will take the conscious intervention of revolutionary socialists based on a program, which is the accumulated experience of our tradition to actually advocate for these things. And that can be done on the basis of the principles of the United Front. Yeah. Um, that means, you know, that we can work together in common campaigns um, for you know, certain specific objectives that we agree on. And obviously, comrades know that us and the AWL work together on the Labour for a Socialist Europe campaign and against Brexit and in NCAF and many campaigns over the years, despite our fundamental and important political differences. So, you know, they can be done. Um, um, Katie, just a couple more minutes, if that's all right. Yeah, I'll, 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 I'll make my last points. Um, and so I think that, those, that that's what we've got to be discussing here. On the basis of the principles of the United Front work, we can actually propose um, useful methods that the working class can use to organise itself. Those forms of work self-organisation will allow the working class to overcome the ability of small revolutionary organisations to balkanise the anti-cuts movement or the resistance movements and so on. On the basis of common work in those united fronts of the working class as a whole, that can potentially lay the basis in the future for principled fusion in a common revolutionary organization. Thank you. Well, um, yeah, thanks for the, um, the debate. Obviously, um, look forward to what uh, Neil has to say. I think that the, um, you know, areas of, of uh, some of the controversies between, you know, Red Flag and the Edivuel are well known to people, but um, they are obviously important ideologies and forms of organisation, all of which were touted at the beginning as being ways of avoiding the traditional left, the traditional Trotsky's left and its problems and so on. Yeah. Um, and so the question of whether we can reconstitute a revolutionary alternative to capitalism depends on whether we can propose a strategy and means of organization by which the working class can organize itself as a class on a mass scale to fight for its own interests. And then within that to develop from within itself a revolutionary vanguard, a revolutionary organization, a revolutionary party nationally and internationally that can organize and lead and direct that struggle to the final goal, which is the seizure power. And that does, in the end, depend on deciding that some tactics and strategies are right, and tactics and strategies derive from principles. It's important that the left should debate each other to set out where there are those areas of agreement and where there are areas of disagreement. But talking about, you know, starting from areas of agreement, I proposed in my introduction, you know, my introduction focused on how the revolutionary left can propose methods of workplace action groups, self-defense, you know, all of these concrete things which can be done in the here and now and will need to be done. There is no waiting for them. If we don't propose them, nobody else will. So I look forward to, you know, a discussion on those concrete proposals of the United Front in a small, you know, on a small scale at first, but building up on a bigger and bigger scale. And I think that is the road to the future building of the mass revolutionary politics in this country and around the world. So thank you. Thanks, Katie. Okay, um, Neil. Okay, I mean, just a few, uh, a few comments. So the first thing, I'm actually going to use the example of um, Che Guevara because, it's, because Che Guevara has come up, oddly, because I happen to have a Che Guevara poster behind my desk. Let me just tell you that in my study, there are also images of Charlie Chaplin and uh, Andy Warhol, and there's a Grunwick poster, uh, strike poster from 1977, and all sorts of other bits and pieces. Um, but I'm going to use the example of Che Guevara. And the reason I'm taking Che Guevara is because one of the problems with the discussion, and one of the problems with the sectarianism which is represented where what people are saying is, do I agree with this detail or that detail? is it assumes the world is static. The world is not static. Everything is process. Everything is movement. And if you look at the career of Che Guevara, his ideas are changing all the time. And if you look at the way in which Che Guevara is interpreted at the time, since, and in the present, 
he's constantly being reinterpreted. You could have exactly the same discussion about a historical figure like Malcolm X. Malcolm X was evolving politically in his own life and the way he is perceived today and the way he is regarded by many black militants, including many of the black militants involved in BLM, means that he's being reinterpreted. This is process, this is reality. Nothing is fixed, nothing is fast frozen. Everything that is solid melts into air, to quote the Communist Manifesto. So let's not think, stop thinking in terms of these rigid, static categories that are embedded in some kind of program, just to repeat this, that nobody can hear. Because actually it's not little groups of 50, 100, 150 people who come up with the program. I'll tell you where the program comes from. It comes from mass working class struggle. And where does the organization come from? It comes from mass working class struggle. The formal organization in 1871 is created by the Paris working class. And the Paris working class then generates political demands. In 1905 and 1907, the Soviets are created by the Russian proletariat when it goes into struggle and the demands of the movement emerge from that mass movement. The idea that you construct some kind of program sitting in front of a computer and you share it with 50 other people and this is the program that's going to emancipate the working class is ludicrous. It's not serious politics. It emerges organically from the mass movements uh, from below. This is, these are not the questions which, which we should be having. The question we should be having is this. We are revolutionary socialists. We are very few. We are much weaker than we were 25 years ago, 50 years ago. The Marxist tradition, the revolutionary socialist tradition is particularly weak at the moment, especially when you look at the size of the working class and the power of some of the struggles that are bubbling up, like Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter actually in Britain, it's a little bit different in the United States, but the truth in Britain is it's gone up like a rocket and come down like a stick. And actually there's not much, there's not much left behind, a little bit like Extinction Rebellion. The revolutionaries have to build an organization where we join together large numbers, not just of existing revolutionaries, but also large numbers of young people and large numbers of rank and file uh, militants and we have to embed ourselves in the mass popular movements and mass popular organizations um, of the moment. These arguments about creating, I mean, let me end on this. The idea that the United Front is Katie in red flag, having a discussion with me in mutiny and having a discussion with uh, Ruth in the AWL about what our program is going to be and we represent, I don't know, I don't know how many people there are in these different organizations. Let me put a figure on it. There's 250 of us and we've all agreed to a program. It is utterly meaningless. What matters is that we as revolutionaries, we represent in terms of the Marxist tradition, the concentrated expression of 200 years of experience of the class struggle. And that is what Marxism is. And that becomes, in the present, in the moment we are living in, the theory and practice of international working class revolution. All of us who believe in the theory and practice of international working class revolution should be in the same organization, sharing our differences, having our debates, but crucially concentrating on what unites us and embedding ourselves in the real struggles of the, uh, of the movement. That's the critical thing. Thanks, Neil. Uh Okay, Ruth, away you go. Sorry. So I'll try and answer the things that people haven't already come back on in the discussion from the AWL. So Malcolm talks about how white the left is, and it's true, and it's a weakness. Um, but not just the working class, but actually organised labour movement is ethnically diverse. You're actually more likely to be a union member if you're black than if you're white in Britain. So I think the whiteness of the revolutionary left and indeed the whiteness of the Labour Party largely reflects that we're quite a small middle-class movement. Now, the answer to that is not to change the politics of what we say. The answer to that is socialist education and education in the labour movement and, and to recruit from, from the unions and from the class in general. Uh, Andy says it's wrong to exceptionalise free movement as a red line. Um, 
I, I don't think we do do that. We do foreground it in the, the collective work we do as Momentum Internationalists, but that's not because it's more important than Israel-Palestine or the Tamil struggle or whatever. It's because in the Labour Party, it's a radical left policy, which was not prioritised by Momentum and was gotten to conference floor by a coalition of people, including members of Mutiny, Red Flag and the AWL, who did a joint operation at conference, got it to conference floor, got it passed through conference, and the next day it was dropped by Diane Abbott on, on a radio show. So the reason that we foreground free movement is not just that we think it's an important principle, but it's actually an important lesson in the Labour Party. And so in the Labour Party, it is a good test because it says, what do you mean about when it comes to internationalism, do you think it's okay to vote for it at conference, but then drop it in public? So I think that's why it's particularly foregrounded in the work of Momentum Internationalists. Um, on the main kind of crutch of the debate, look, of course, unity needs to be based on something. And that something can't simply be consensus in terms of trying to find a few points we agree on and leaving everything else aside. There are real differences between existing left groups, between individuals about real and important issues. For the labor movement to be able to win socialism, we have to be able to thrash out those issues and develop a coherent strategy. But we do need a framework for unity, a framework for unity in action where we agree, which is on a lot. I think Rowan's right, it is on a lot. Um, and we need honest and serious debate where we disagree. And I, 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 think it's, um, I think it's true that actually positions on the left can become far more rigid by failing to discuss them. And the more that we debate them, some of the lines might change and people will move to either side. But I think that this process by nature is going to be transitional. So it will be joint projects, whether that's joint projects on the things that Katie suggested or joint left projects in the Labour Party or joint projects in the unions. It will be initially joint projects um, or joint meetings where we discuss different political issues. And, and hopefully that eventually that could be a joint revolutionary organisation. But I think we just have to accept that that's going to be a transitional process where we try and work together where we can. And we work out what we can do in unity and where the agreement is and where the disagreement is. And I think this is a good start to it and we should bring more people into it and we should have more, not necessarily debates on the lines of difference every time, also discussion about what we should be doing jointly sometimes, but we should continue these conversations and continue joint work as far as we can. Cheers, comrades. Thank you.